Um, glad you guys are here tonight uh, for part three of our midweek fellowship series on growing as a Christian. And tonight we're going to look in particular at the, uh, the role of prayer in the Christian's growth, uh, sanctification. Um, so uh, on that note, let me, let me pray for us just to start off our, our time. Um, I think that's probably a good way to start talking about prayer. Uh, and then, uh, and then we'll, we'll get into it, Lord. We do ask with Drew that you would, um, that you would cause us to worship you tonight. That, that as we discuss these things, as we talk about prayer in particular, uh, and then as we pray as a church family for one another, I pray that our, uh, our hearts would rest in the gospel, that we would take great comfort from the cross, uh, knowing that our sins are such that uh, on, on our own merits, there's no way you would, you would want to hear us. Um, and yet, because of the merits of Christ, not only are our sins atoned for, uh, but you eagerly hear us and listen to us and, uh, and, and desire to do good things for us because, because of Christ, from whom every good thing comes. So, Lord, we pray that you would stir up our affections, give us a greater desire for Jesus, and in doing so, would you give us a desire for prayer? And we ask that in his name. Amen. So, the last few weeks, uh, we've talked in particular about just what it means to abide in Christ. And so, two weeks ago, we looked at John, the Gospel of John, chapter 15, and the, um, the way that Jesus describes the Christian life to his disciples as that of abiding in him, like a like a vine on a, uh, well, like a vine, he's the vine, but then like branches on that vine, we grow, and, uh, and then not only do we grow, but we bear fruit. Uh, and the Lord prunes us, and he uh, directs us, and helps us to, uh, uh, to, to just be, to, to flourish, and to uh, produce, and be fruitful. Um, but that's the Lord's work, and that, in essence, is what the Christian life is like, is that we are abiding in him. And so um, we, I, I mentioned this quote from John Newton, and I think I'll probably just mention it every single week because I think it's a really helpful way to encapsulate everything. To know Christ is the shortest description of true grace. To know him better is the surest mark of growth in grace. To know him perfectly is eternal life. The Christian life is, is all about knowing Christ, knowing Christ, knowing Christ. Sometimes we're tempted to want to know ourselves better or want to know other people better or what other people think about Christ better, but that's not the solution. We need to know Jesus better. Uh, and so how can we do that? We talked last week about knowing Jesus better through Scripture and the importance of hearing from the Lord as the Lord has revealed himself to us, as the Lord has shown us what the gospel is. Who better to tell us how to live, how to be, how to follow him, how to honor him and do things that please him but the Lord himself? And praise God, he's given us his word where we can open up the Bible and hear from God in, in an instant. And not only that, but by his Holy Spirit, we can understand and interpret the things that he's written for us to know. Uh, we can apply them to our hearts. The Holy Spirit is the agent that changes us according to God's word. That's an incredible blessing that he does not give to everybody. He gives that to his children. Um, this week, I want to look at prayer how we can know God better, how we can abide in him better uh, through prayer as a, as a means of, of doing that. 
So my first point, and this is really more just sort of the background foundational kind of idea here. The first point, though, is this. If abiding in Christ is how we grow, and according to John 15, that's, that's how we do it. And if knowing God in Christ is the essence of eternal life, if that's how eternal life comes to pass, which is what we find out in John 17. Jesus tells us in 17 verse 3, uh, I, want them to, I want my disciples to know you because that's eternal life. That's a paraphrase. Um, but if, if, if abiding in, in Christ and knowing God in Christ, if these are the essential qualities of the Christian life, then we should pray the same way. We should pray accordingly, right? We should pray in a way that we are abiding in Christ. We should pray in a way that reflects that we know God. And not only that we are abiding, but that we, we want to, to continue to abide. Not just that we do know the Lord, but that we, we, we seek to continue to know and to know better the Lord. Um, abiding in Christ, we talked about that first week. And, and I think we've addressed knowing God well. But I think when it comes to prayer, this idea of knowing God is really, is really important. Um, for, for too many people, who God is, his character, his qualities... Um, what, what makes him God and holy and unique uh, is oftentimes just not seen as a very important thing. I mean, this is just theology. But for a lot of people, we, sh- we shy away from that and we prefer to have our own idea of who our God is and what he's like and what he likes and therefore what we should do and how we can approach him. All of that a lot of times is built around what our culture says or what just our own instincts might dictate, which sometimes can be helpful because we're people made in God's image, but most of the time are not a solid, 100% reliable source of information. Um, we need to think deeply about who our God is. And the Lord has given us his word that we might know him well. And I think when it comes to prayer, there are two things that are really helpful to just bear in mind as we approach the Lord in prayer, and that, that, that we might be able to grow in prayer. And, and I guess it's, it's two things, but it's really one big idea which is this, that our God is absolutely personal. He's absolutely personal. Let me unpack that for you, because that sentence doesn't really mean anything. Uh, our God is absolute, and our God is deeply personal. And this is, this is something that is really unique about Christianity. Uh, it's unique about the God of the Bible. Um, so we're going to get a little apologetic here for a second. Uh, not that I'm apologizing. I'm not sorry. I'm saying we're going to, I'm going to offer to you just a helpful thing to think about as you consider what makes the God of the Bible so unique among all the gods and goddesses of, of the world. And not only that, but what distinguishes the God of the Bible from like the God of Islam, which is so often difficult, I think, even for some Christians to discern what makes them different. Um, so let's, let's talk about this. The God of the Bible is absolute and he's personal. Uh, for him to be absolute, it means that he's sovereign over everything. There's no, there's no one greater, but not only that, there's no one equal to him. There's no one on his level. There's no one on his par. Right? Our God, the God of the Bible is presented to us very clearly, emphatically, from Genesis 1 through Revelation 21, 22. I can never remember. Anyway, from A to Z, the God of the Bible is clearly presented to us as the one and only, the beginning and the end, the, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one true God of the universe. He's absolute. Now, a lot of religions in the world will present their, their gods as absolute. You know, as, as, 
as the greatest, uh, as something that nothing greater can be even imagined. Um, the problem is that there's really no other, there's no other place you can go, though, to find a God who is absolute, but also personal. And that's where the God of the Bible is so different. Uh, the God of Scripture is not just great and lofty and over all things and mighty and superior and sovereign and providential and uh, does what he pleases, but he's also very personal. He's knowable because our God is a person. That's something that, that you just don't find. You do not find these two things in conjunction and in any other world religion, any other deity that people can, can come up with and have come up with. Their gods and goddesses might be very personal. You can know them, uh, or at least that's the way that they think of them, is that they're, they're knowable maybe. They're like people that you can speak to them or hear from them. But a lot of the time, uh, effectively virtually every time, th those same gods are never absolute. There might be a whole pantheon of gods and goddesses, which by definition means they're not absolute. There's one in a million. They may be personal, but they're not over all things. They're not, they're not the final authority on everything. The God of the Bible is. He's, he's both. He is personal. You can know him, and yet he's sovereign over all. Or other religions might have a God who is very sovereign and powerful and mighty and absolute, but is not personal. This is, this is Allah. Uh, that, that, that is what Allah is like. Uh, there, there is no knowing him. There's fearing, there's dreading, there's submitting, there's subservience, but there is no relationship there. So the God of the Bible is, is absolute and he's personal. And we see this personal nature of God displayed in a, in a few ways here. In particular, our God is triune. All right, he's three persons in one. And I think that's a really telling way to understand how our God is so personal. His very essence is relational. Just in and of himself, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are in perfect, infinite, eternal relation with one another. Uh, the Trinity is a pretty, pretty crazy doctrine. It's difficult to establish and really think through and, and piece together and have a perfect dictionary definition of that anyone is just going to be happy with. But the doctrine of the Trinity we find throughout Scripture. We don't find the word. We find this idea, though, that the Father is God, that Jesus, the Son, is God, that the Holy Spirit is God. And yet, the Holy Spirit isn't the Father, isn't the Son. The Son isn't the Father and isn't the Holy Spirit. The Father isn't the Son. He isn't the Holy Spirit. And yet, each of these three persons is God. What this means, though, for us is that our God, by definition, is personal. This is why, in Scripture, we can see that, that our God is love. Because in his own essence, just in and of himself, because of who he is, our God is love. Not just that he's loving, but the, the very nature of who he is, is love. And that's really important for prayer. You may be thinking, how in the world are you getting here? But if our God isn't personal, why speak to him? We can't actually speak to him. If you don't have a personal God, you can't approach him. He's not going to hear you. He doesn't care. Why would he care if he's not personal? If our God is not absolute, why approach him? I mean, it's nice if he wants to hear what you have to say and he wants to 
care for you and provide for you and do great things for you. But if he's not absolute, then ultimately he can't, he really doesn't have any authority or power to do whatever it is that, that he might want to do for you, right? If he's not absolute, we have a problem. So we have a problem either way. And yet as Christians, as believers, our God being absolute and personal means that we can approach him confidently, knowing that he knows us and can be known by us. Like we can actually know our God personally. Not as abstractly, not as theologically, doctrinally, but we can know him personally because our God is, is personal and we can trust him with the things that we care about and the, the requests that we might have because he is absolute and has all authority in heaven and on earth to do what pleases him. And yeah, caring for his children is something that pleases him. So this is really important. And we see the Trinity, the Trinity itself, we, we see the, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit at work in the Christian life and in particular in the way that we pray. And the, the very way that our prayers are actually carried out. If you turn to Romans uh, chapter 8, I'll just point out a few uh, verses here that I, I think establish uh, this idea. Romans chapter 8. We see the Trinity at work in the life of the believer. Uh, and it, it's true general, gen in general for the Christian life, but it's also true in general for Christian prayer, uh, which I hope you're starting to see is, is really just, Christian prayer is just a, it's just a microcosm of the Christian life. It's a microcosm of the gospel. We'll, we'll talk more about that. If you turn to Romans chapter 8, uh, and you look at verse 36, this, this is Paul speaking, giving, just laying out the, the incredible chain of events that the Lord brings to pass in the life of his people, in the life of his elect. Those who he's called and justified, he will glorify and has glorified, and so on, right? In the midst of all of that, Paul gives us some great encouragement uh, to persevere, to pray even. And he says in verse 26 of chapter 8, he says this, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. We don't really have time to get into what these groanings too deep for words really means. Um, but but the, the general idea behind it all is that our prayers are made effective and even understandable to the Lord because of the Holy Spirit. And the, the Holy Spirit intercedes with groanings too deep for words, even. Which I, I, I tend to just interpret to mean that even when we pray and our prayers just don't even make sense, Maybe literally, but, but maybe even just metaphorically in general, our prayers just don't make sense. We're just all over the place. We're just seeking the Lord. The Holy Spirit, he, he goes to bat for us, and he speaks to the Lord for us, and he intercedes for us. The Holy Spirit does this, and the Holy Spirit's able to do this because he is the third person of the Trinity. Right? He, he, he speaks on our behalf. The, the Father we read about in verse 28 says... Um, well, I'll just read verse 27 as well. He who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Verse 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. So if the Holy Spirit intercedes for God's people, it's the Father who, who brings these things to pass. It's the Father who, who has these designs for his people that will surely happen. 
because he is sovereign over all things, and because he has purposes and plans for his people, and he will inevitably bring them about uh, for those who uh, he works all things together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. He works all things together for our good. Um, If you skip down to verse 34, that's where we see the sun. He says this in verse 34, and he's just running through a whole litany of all the reasons why Christians should not panic or be afraid that salvation rests in themselves, because it doesn't. He says in verse 34, for example, who is to condemn? Can you be condemned? Who's going to condemn the believer? Who can condemn God's elect? And the reason why he, he shoots this down at me is like, man, who can condemn us? And the implicit answer is nobody. Nobody can't. But why? And that's what he gets to here. He says, because Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us. He, 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 he somehow he even prays on our behalf. Not just, not just for us, but almost like through us, through the groanings too deep for even human understanding. But, but Jesus himself, he sits at the throne and he pleads to his Father on our behalf. Not that the Father is begrudging, but, but rather because Jesus loves us so much, right, that he goes to the Father because of his own death in our place. He then takes upon himself, not just our sin, but, but the burden of bringing to pass and advocating for us for everything that that is the Father's will for our lives. You, you become more and more like Jesus, not just because, but because Jesus is interceding for you. You, you see the, 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 your prayers answered and, and blessings come to pass, wisdom granted, not just because the Lord thinks you're really smart and you just knew how to say it, but because Jesus intercedes for you. Right now, Jesus is interceding for you. I, I love like at the end of one of the Gospels when Jesus is talking to Peter and, and he tells Peter, he says, um, you know, the, the Satan has asked her, is it, is it the Lord? I'm really going to botch this now. Uh, Satan has asked that he might, you know, refine you. Or the Lord is asked, who is it, Jeremy? You're not in your head. Who is it? It's P- He's talking to Peter. Sift you like Who's going to sift him like wheat? Satan, right? Okay. Just want to make sure I wasn't attributing the wrong person here. Um, Satan wants to sift you like wheat, and Jesus says, but I've, I've prayed for you. That's incredible. But it's, it's, it's only possible and, and something that we can actually delight in because Jesus is actually God himself. And as the second person of the Trinity, he has direct access to, the, just to heavenly wisdom. Um, so we see that our triune God at work in, in our prayer life. Our, our prayers are effective and purposeful and, uh, and, and we see the Lord bring, give us blessing and good gifts in accordance with our prayers um, because of the Holy Spirit, because of Jesus, and simply because the Father does all things for the good of those who love him. All, right. all of that is the foundation then for, for prayer. Um, a really helpful book on, on this sort of thing, which I was just talking about, the, that our God is absolute and personal. Um, uh, you can find in uh, this book by John Frame. It's called Christianity Considered. It's a really short book, and the chapters are really small. It's meant to be more of an apologetics guide that you could give to an, like a non-believer, and they would be able to pick up and really understand. 
Uh, I really like that book. I like a lot of the stuff. I like all the stuff that John Frame writes, but, um, but that's a really helpful book if you just want to think more about that. Um, what's that? John Frame is the author, and the book is called Christianity Considered. Uh, he's got another book called Apologetics, which, which is the big version of that small book. But, um, so our God is absolutely personal, and that's great news. Because our God then can and has, in fact, revealed himself to us. He has all authority to do that, but not only does he have the authority to do it, as a person, he he can do it. And he has done it. And we can understand it, we can receive it, and we can know him personally. Because that we know the Lord because of Scripture, we meet him there, we hear from him, we learn. Uh, what, what he loves and, and what he's like because of Scripture. But we also respond to this God that we can know through prayer. Um, a really helpful book, I'm just going to throw out another recommendation here. It's a book by Tim Keller. It's called Prayer. Uh, and it's one of my favorite books on prayer. But in, in particular because he, he doesn't jump to like how to pray and what to do and tips and all that sort of stuff. He gets there eventually, and, it's, and that's helpful too. But he, he roots it all in the, the, the truth that we can only speak to God because he's first spoken to us. Um, we, can, we can only speak to him helpfully, wisely, correctly, in as much as we, we know what he has said to us. We know what the Lord likes. We, we know what the Lord desires for us, and that informs our prayers. We know who the Lord is. We know how to approach him, and that informs how we pray. And so our prayers are then a response to what the Lord has done. And I hope that you're starting to see this pattern unfold then. That, that prayer itself is really, it's just the gospel written out in this particular way. Where we simply respond to what the Lord has done for us. That's what prayer is. We're responding to the incredible grace and condescension and mercy and love of our God who initiates everything. And we respond to him and we speak to him and he, he hears us. So if we abide in Christ when we pray, then we experience the gospel and then we grow from it. That, that's how prayer is so important. That's how prayer works itself out in the growth of the Christian. Um, so abiding in, in Christ then isn't just like the aim of our prayers. It's certainly something we should pray for. If you go through Paul's prayers... At the beginning of most of his letters, he has a prayer for the Colossians, the Ephesians, so on. If you read through those prayers, you find that Paul is very never concerned with like the practical, specific prayer requests that each church might have. Obviously, Paul cares about these things, and I'm sure in personal conversation, he prayed for these things and asked about them. But in these letters that we have for us in Scripture, we find that the focus of Paul's prayers is so often on that they would know Christ, that they would understand the gospel, that they would grow in grace, and that this would be worked out in their lives in various ways. It's very general, but very important and foundational to the way that Paul prays for them. So yeah, abiding in Christ is certainly the aim of our prayers. But what I want you to see is not just that abiding in Christ is the aim of our prayers. I think it's the foundation of our prayers. It's the only way we actually can pray in a helpful, biblical, this will stir up growth in you sort of way. If, if, if we're praying from a heart that is abiding in Christ. Does that make sense? You see what I'm saying? 
not just that we would pray that we would abide, but that we actually abide in him as we, as we pray. So how should we pray? How does that look? What, how do we work this out? What, is it, what does it mean to, to abide in Christ as we pray? What does it mean for our prayers, rather, to be rooted and resting in Christ? Um, the, the only, I mean, the best place for us to go would be the, the Lord's Prayer, right? This model prayer that Jesus gives us. And there are two places in the Gospels where we see it, and I want to look at both of them. So turn to Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15, and then also uh, turn to Luke chapter 11. Matthew 6 and Luke 11. Uh, there are these two places where, the, the, where Jesus offers this model of how to pray to his disciples. Uh, it's interesting because there are some differences. There's, I mean, incredible similarity, um, but there are some differences. Unless you panic, I think it's important to establish that each of these parts of these Gospels is recorded at a, like a different time in the ministry work of Jesus. So in Matthew 6, we're in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is addressing this large crowd. And he says, hey, here's some thoughts about prayer, and let me give you a model way to pray. That one is much more drawn out. It's got just more words, a few extra little bits to it. Uh, and in the Gospel of Luke, uh, it's clear that Jesus has, has got this model prayer like in his back pocket, and he's just rolling it out when people ask him about prayer. Uh, and so he brings it up with his disciples, or rather they ask him how to pray in a more private conversation. And Jesus brings it up with them, uh, I guess, again, uh, and he, he gives them this prayer, and it's a little bit shorter, a little bit more to the point, but he also gives a little extra thought about what it looks like to pray. Uh, so we're going to look at both of these things because I think it's really helpful. Um, so my, my, my second point, I guess, um, is that uh, our prayers abide in Christ when, when these certain things follow. And you can see it up on the screen, uh, what we're about to, to read. But let me read for you from Matthew chapter 6 first. And then I'll read to you from, Matthew, from Luke chapter 11. So uh, brace yourselves. Uh, Matthew chapter 6. Well, I'm going to actually read the prayer itself from both. So Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Jesus tells the disciples, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's Matthew 6. If you look at Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 2, Jesus said to them, to his disciples, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. And of course, he follows that up with some more teaching just on prayer in general. Um, I want to look at just the substance of the prayer first. Let's just consider the, consider the content of Jesus' model prayer here. Um, our prayers are going to abide in Christ, or our prayers show themselves to be abiding in Christ, resting in him when they are, according to these prayers, when they are deferential and when they are dependent. Deferential and dependent. Let's just look at those two points first. Um, the, the first half of the Lord's Prayer, and really in both these passages, is very much oriented towards deferring to the Lord. There are probably a million other words you could use to describe it. It's very reverential towards the Lord, depending on his will and his glory and seeking 
that his name would be hallowed and so forth. Uh, coming to the, the Father, a very just reverential posture. Um, but I, I like the word deference. I, I, like, I like thinking of this as, as deferential. It's deferring. It's saying, Lord, I, I want to see your will done. I want to see what pleases you take place in this world. And by extension, in my own heart, my own life, my family, Lord, I, I defer to you. It says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, right? Your will be done on earth just like in heaven. Uh, the will of God is done very perfectly in heaven, if you didn't pick up on that. And so the, the idea here is we want to see God's will done perfectly here on earth. I want to see, Lord, I, I want to see things happen according to what you design and what your wisdom dictates not necessarily according to my wisdom. I'd love for there to be overlap, but, but I'm going to defer to you. Our prayers should not only be deferential, but they should be dependent too. And that's where the second half of the Lord's Prayer, I think that's, that's reflected there. It says, give us this day, or give us each day, in Luke, our daily bread. Daily bread. Just the simple, the things that I need to survive this day, uh, I, I, Lord, I depend on you. For us, this idea of the daily bread just doesn't often resonate because bread just sort of appears, you know? Uh, it's just there. I think for, for most people uh, in our church, it's, it just shows up, it seems like. We can go out and get it, or oh, I gotta run to the store and pick up more. We, just, we oftentimes don't realize how dependent we are on the Lord for just every minute detail of our lives. I think we can be kind of cynical towards prayer then, because we just assume, well, I prayed for that, but it came about because my debit card happened to be in my wallet, and I went to Publix, and, and I ended up with bread. Uh, or, or, you know, we, we pray for things even like just getting better from sickness. You know, Lord, help me help them to, to get well, to recover. And when it happens, how often do we really turn to the Lord and thank him for that, as opposed to just sort of writing it off as, well, there are doctors and there's medicine. Uh, that's why this person is better. Uh, when that's actually something that the Lord used to answer the, your prayer. You know, we, just, we can be very easily deceived into being cynical in our prayers about the mundane sort of things, the things that seem very obvious and just, of course, this would happen. Um, and yet, our prayers should be dependent on the Lord for everything and every circumstance. The things that we think we can handle and will probably just work themselves out, which is nothing, uh, or, or the things that we know we need help with and things that we are absolutely dependent on the Lord to provide for. Uh, we're, we're, we're to be dependent. Uh, we ask the Lord to forgive us our debts, to forgive us our sins, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Uh, Luke goes a bit further, as we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, um, which is a, that's a, that's a pretty tall order. I don't know. If, if, if anyone in this room is maybe going to be bold enough to say, oh, yes, I've forgiven everyone who is indebted to me, uh, no problem. Um, but this is the posture of the Christian. Lord, would you forgive me because I am a sinner? I find myself so often naturally opposed to you. Even as I pray that your will would be done, I know that I'm still going to seek my own and that I absolutely need your forgiveness. Not only that, but I... I myself know that as I judge, so will I be judged. And so I, I, I need to offer to others the same forgiveness that, that I know is mine in Christ. I need to be able to give that to other people. I need to be able to forgive 
other people, which requires a certain amount of humility as well and dependence on the Lord. Um, but not only that, lead us not into temptation. Not, don't just forgive me, but also protect me from future offense against your will that I might commit here. Uh, lead me from, deliver me from evil. Um, these are just regular mundane things that Christians face. Whether we like to think about it regularly or not, this is the Christian life. This is what it so often looks like, is what it boils down to. And in all of it, Jesus calls us to be deferential and dependent on the Lord. I think those two things in particular demonstrate a heart that is abiding, resting in Christ. So if you're not resting in Christ, if you're not abiding in him, then your prayers are not going to be deferential. They're, they're going to be, uh, I can't think of, uh, they're going to be commanding. Right? Because if it depends on you, as opposed to Christ, then our posture toward the Lord will inevitably depend on us as well. We will see the Lord as our servant rather than as our, our master, our Lord, and the one who has bought our lives at a price. If your life is not abiding in Christ, then your, your prayers will not be deferential. They'll, they'll not be dependent on the Lord, uh, but will instead be oriented around your own self, your own abilities. And for that matter, um, if you're not abiding in Christ, you probably won't be praying. Um, because why would you? You know, because if it all depends on you, then, then there's really no point. Um, and that sometimes works itself out in obvious ways where maybe we even think that. But sometimes it's revealed in just the reality of our own prayerlessness. That we just don't, we're not really resting in the gospel. And so we don't pray. Whereas resting in the gospel should actually spur that on and, and instill in us a deeper desire to seek the Lord and defer to him and depend on him. Um, Let's not just look at the content of the prayers. Let's look as well at the, the rest of what Jesus teaches us about prayer in these passages. So if you turn, to, uh, if you turn back to Matthew chapter 6, um, not only do our, um, uh, I'll tell you what, um, Carl, could you throw that slide back up on the screen for a second here? I want to make sure I'm getting it right. Yeah, okay. So our prayers abide in Christ when we're deferential and dependent. But then these, these extra teachings of Jesus tucked in around these model prayers give us an, a greater sense of how our prayers should be. So turn, yeah, turn to Matthew chapter 6, uh, verses 5 and 6. In the, the lead up to this prayer that he gives us, he tells his disciples, When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Um, prayers that, that come from a heart that is abiding in Christ, they are oriented towards the Lord. Uh, they're not concerned about man. They're concerned about the Lord. They're not concerned about what man thinks of their wording or their contents or their earnestness, their grammatical correctness, their emotion. That We're not concerned what man thinks about that. Uh, but rather, we, we want to be oriented primarily towards, towards lo the Lord and, and what he thinks. And, and in that sense, then it frees us up to be able to pray very honestly, humbly, 
Uh, but honestly and truthfully, without any regard for the, just the, the things that maybe culturally we're kind of um, uh, conditioned to pray for, or the ways that we're conditioned to pray itself, uh, but, but we can go before the Lord. In fact, we're encouraged to go before the Lord uh, behind closed doors, uh, that, that we might realize that he's, he's actually the one that we're talking to. Uh, and, and he is the one that we're beseeching and that we're coming before, not, not other people. And we may not think about our prayers in front of others that way. Well, I'm asking for so-and-so to really do this. I'm praying to the Lord, but I'm really praying for them. Now, we don't think about it that way. Uh, but but we, we sometimes get into this habit of thinking, well, if I pray in a way that is powerful and gets, gets head nods and amens, then this is how it's going to be effective. This is, this is a good prayer. Um, but that's not... That's not that. That's not what the Lord has called us to. He's pointing us here to really have no regard for what people think, but instead to have our aim be on what the Lord thinks and how he might respond and and how he cares for us. Matthew chapter 6, verses 7 through 8. When you pray, Jesus says, he continues, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Uh, prayers that are abiding in Christ are sincere. They're not manipulative. They're not formulaic. Not that formula is bad, but, but when, we, uh, when we tether ourselves to formula thinking that this formula is what holds the power, that this thing is what will get the Lord's attention. If I pray exactly this way or in this format, or if I order my requests and my praises and my thanksgiving and my confession, if I order it a certain way, then, then I will turn the key uh, to the riches of the Lord and to his blessings that he might give me. If that's how we think of prayer, then we're, we're going to stumble into some problems. Our prayers are, are meant to be sincere. Uh, the prayer of a person who's abiding in Christ will be sincere, not manipulative. Um, Matthew 6, 14 and 15, if you forgive others their trespasses, and this is right at the end of, of the prayer in which Jesus tells us to forgive. He says to pray, forgive us our debts, for we also have forgiven our debtors. He says in verse 14, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This isn't talking about salvation. This is not to say, well, if you've forgiven other people, then you'll be saved. Uh, but rather, the regular rhythm of the Christian life, we must be forgiving people. Because in order for us to have right relationship with our Father, forgiveness ha- necessarily exudes from the Christian. Maybe not always automatically we are fallen people, but, I, but the point is, those who have received forgiveness, those who have been forgiven much, in turn forgive much. And so then our prayers are not only meant to be oriented toward the Lord and sincere in, in, in our hearts, but they're meant to be rooted in the humility of forgiveness, knowing that we've been forgiven. Uh, and, and then likewise, knowing that the Lord has caused us and called us to, to be then conduits of forgiveness and grace towards other people, especially the people who have sinned against us, right? Um, Luke chapter 11, verses 5 through 13. At the end of this model prayer there, Jesus says to them, 
Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves? For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. Is that going to happen is his question. How many of you has that happened to? He says in verse 8, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, because of his persistence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And this is just some guy's friend, just his buddy. I mean, you can imagine knocking on your friend's door in the middle of the night, asking for whatever, and maybe not being received, welcomed warmly uh, because of that. Uh, But generally speaking, you go through the trouble and you're probably going to be met with whatever it is that you ask for, just because of your impudence. That's just earthly relationships. He says in verse 9, I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? I mean, that'd be an abusive father. Um, Verse 13, if you then who are evil, relatively speaking, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Um, Prayer that is abiding in Christ is persistent and confident in the Lord's goodness. Even even the worst dad is not giving his kid a scorpion when he asks for an egg. Uh, How much more so can you expect your Heavenly Father to be kind and, and honestly, mercifully, lavishly good to you. And, and so all of these things paint for us a picture of prayer that I think is, is really, it fleshes out this idea that as we abide in Christ, we grow. And, and, it, and it shows how prayer itself is a means of abiding in Christ. It's, it's a way that we work that out. Because when we pray this way, along these lines, it... it it reveals the nature of the gospel in our very prayers. As as we pray this way, dependent not on ourselves, but dependent on the Lord, deferential to the Lord, not, not commanding, expecting, demanding things of him, oriented toward the Lord, not to what people think or even our own self-perception, sincere, not trying to manipulate the Lord or be underhanded or try to manufacture some sort of desired outcome, rooted in humility, knowing that we desperately need the Lord's forgiveness. And not only that, but the humility that calls us to then be forgiving of other people. And then, finally, persistent, confident, not that the Lord just will begrudgingly care for us, but that he actually loves us as his children and wants to do good things for us, according to Romans 8, 28. If we pray this way, it, it reveals a heart that is really resting and abiding in Christ. Um, so if you, if you find yourself less prayerful than you'd like to be, which I'm sure Probably all of us, if we really think about it, would say, yeah, I wish I was more prayerful, but I just can't quite figure it out. If, if you find yourself less prayerful than you'd like to be, it's possible that, um, that you maybe have veered from prayer's purpose. And you may be praying backwards. You may, you may be putting prayer as though it's sort of the second rung on the Christian ladder. 
and you start out with abiding in Christ and then you, then you pray later, and that becomes kind of the next step of maturity. Or maybe you pray solely only that you might then, in the end, abide in Christ. But if that's how you pray, then you're actually missing it because prayer is meant to be rooted in, grounded in abiding in Christ. And and our prayers then should be actually, I think, the fruit of abiding in the vine. It's one of the, the, the pumpkins that grows out of that is that we abide, as we abide in Jesus, we then pray this way. And so the solution is, yeah, to, let's, let's reconsider then our understanding of the gospel. Maybe you need to really reflect on just the goodness of the Lord, his incredible grace to you, that despite all of your sin and iniquity and fault and failure and, and lack of desire to even serve the Lord, he has loved you so much that he withheld, has withheld nothing, not even his only son, that he might redeem you and ransom you and then give you all the blessings, all of the inheritance that is rightfully Christ, you become a co-heir in. And that wasn't because you prayed awesome. It wasn't because you did something particularly noteworthy. It was simply because the Lord just loved you enough to do that. And he's just very gracious and kind and loving. And he, and he brings that about. But honestly, I think one of the ways that we can combat prayerlessness, and this is going to sound kind of silly, but it's true, is actually by praying even when you don't feel like it, because there's something about praying and having this posture, putting yourself in the position to depend on the Lord that just reinforces the gospel in your life. And it forces you to actually live out what the gospel is, because as you pray, you are depending on the Lord for something that you can't do yourself. You're depending on the Lord to bring about something that that only he can do. And, and ultimately, we are depending on the Lord to save us from our sin. And that's the essence of prayer. Lord, help me. I can't do this. Lord, save me. Otherwise, I will perish. That's prayer. That's the gospel. So let's pray then with that, with that heart, with that attitude. Uh, and, and we might actually grow in the Lord because of just praying that way. Not necessarily just because of what we pray for, but just with that posture. I think the Lord causes us to be more like him. Let me pray for us. Um, Father, I I thank you for this incredible truth, this incredible gift that you are so gracious that you would reveal yourself to us, that you would beckon us to be like you, and that you would, through your Holy Spirit, through the intercession of your Son, and just because of your providence and power and love, that you would bring it about, that our prayers might be heard and we might become more like you. Lord, our, our prayers are a reflection of our understanding of the gospel and our, our, our love for this good news. And for some, that may be discouraging because we look at our prayerlessness and we, we, we wonder what that, what that says about just, just what we understand of the gospel. Lord, I pray that you would encourage us then to, to turn to you in prayer. Not to check off a box, not to appease you in some way, but, but simply because by praying, we are reminded again and again 
that you have done everything for us. That every good and perfect gift comes from you. And that as a father with his children, you love us and are eager to hear us. And not only that, but you beckon us to speak to you by speaking to us first. You, you call us to seek you because you sought us first. So help us to then pray and seek you and, and look to you and speak to you and cry out to you, mourn to you, turn to you for all of our needs, knowing that, that it is all because of your grace. and your kindness, and because of Jesus. And we ask this in in his name. Amen.